been praying for all of you in so many different ways. You know, I know that many of us and many of you have um, things that are going on on different levels, different types of loss, different types of just destruction and chaos and uncertainty that we're navigating. Man, you know, I, I my heart hurts for the people of our church and, and the people around us who have, have lost so much. But man, just being able to rest in the grace of God, to look into our lives in the midst of destruction and chaos and just be reminded of the humility of Christ to stand on our behalf and bear the weight of sin. And God is good, church. When everything around us falls apart, God is still good. And this morning, as we continue in the book of Galatians, I pray that we would see that even more as that is Paul's passion for his people to understand grace. To understand grace. And we're going to pick up this morning, I'm going to read, and then I'll just pray really quickly for the Lord to speak to us through the text. But we're going to be in Galatians chapter 1, picking up in verse 6, reading down to verse 10. Galatians chapter 1. Reading from verse 6 down to verse 10. Let us read this together, church. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In verse 10, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Church, let's pray. Father, speak to us in this text. God, help us not be distracted by the distorted messages around us. God, let us fix our eyes on the truth of your word that is founded in Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for us. Father God, let us see you clearly this morning for who you are and what you have for us. Father, we love you and thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. So just a quick recap, since it's been a couple weeks or so since we've been on this. Remember, we're in the book of Galatians. This is uh, more than likely one of Paul's earliest epistles written to a church that he had just been at several months before writing this letter. And he's writing back to them to encourage them, to redirect them as they've been distracted, as people have come in and infiltrated uh, and started to question Paul's leadership, question his message, question his credibility. And so these men have come into this space in this, this uh, region of Galatia. Uh, remember that he's not writing to one specific church, but he's writing to a region of churches in this area. And he's telling them, he's telling them, look, he's redirecting their focus. He's reassuring them of what he came earlier and he told them. And so what is the big idea? What is he trying to communicate to them? What he's trying to help them and fix their understanding on is the legal standing of a Christian before a holy God and how we even get to that place where we're able to stand before a holy God, call ourselves the Son of God, and walk in the calling that he has for us. 
And so as we're kind of continuing to navigate through chapter 1, we're still kind of in the intro as Paul is really laying the groundwork. You know, Paul spent the first two chapters really speaking about uh, who he is and what his ministry is and what he came there to do. He'll spend the next two chapters really hitting home grace and what that means to live in the Christian liberty that God has given us. And then he'll wrap up with his benediction at, at the end in the last chapters, uh, continuing to call the people to Christian living. Because of what God's done for us, this is how we live. A lot of Paul's letters are written out this way. And so as we continue on this morning, and I'm going to be quick this morning. I know our kiddos, they're anxious and antsy. Uh, but, you know, I, and, and you know if you need to get up, there's the, the spot in there is cooled off. You can it'd be a good reason to get out there. What's up? You got something for me? Oh, yes. I love that. Just a, bit of, just a bit of encouragement. I appreciate that, Lord. So, two things this morning that I pray that we see what Paul has for us in this text as he's communicating to the people to help focus their attention on who God is and what God has done through Jesus Christ for them on the cross. And so the two things this morning are this. The first thing being that the true gospel is clear and the true gospel is about Christ. The true gospel is clear and the true gospel is about Christ. Christ. So Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, he says this, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting. I love how Paul always approaches things in a very pastoral way. You know, Paul didn't write in this, in this portion and say that I'm horrified and, and just uh, how despicable you're, uh, despicable you're being, how just uh, you're turning away, you're just, you, just, you, you reprobate, you horrible people. Like he's just not coming down on them with his heavy hand, but he's being very clear and very uh, precise where he's saying, I, I'm, I'm astonished. You know, almost like I'm just amazed. Like it has, you can hear kind of the, 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 the call of Paul's heart as a pastor of these people by saying, like, I brought you a message and how quickly you've been turned away. But something I think we can see from that, you know, we can know that Paul was at this place only months before writing this letter. And so through writing this letter then, through writing this letter then, we can see how quickly things changed, how quickly uh, Paul's message uh, was changed within them. And what we need to understand, church, what we need to understand is how infectious a false message is that is counter-gospel when we are under pressure, when we are under, when we are under uh, influence. Hey, what's up? When we are under pressure, when we are under persuasion, when we are being exposed to things, that when we are being shaped by our unchecked experiences. And I think this is very important, that we need to take into consideration the things that we're hearing, the things that we're being taught, the things that we're listening to. Listen, the Bible tells us to always have a discerning spirit. You should be discerning the things I say or any other person that preaches a message to you. You should be discerning those things. And so when we're not discerning those things as a people of Galatia like we're uh, not doing, it seems as if things have begun to change, that their focus on what they believe about the gospel is beginning to change. And when he uses this word deserting, and this word deserting can also be translated as a turning away or a turning oneself away. So they are choosing. They're not being forced. They've been exposed uh, to a message. They've been exposed to a method that is different than what Paul brought. And they are being persuaded by this. They are turning away from this so quickly because uh, these, these messages, these false messages, these false gospels, they can be so infectious to us if we allow them to marinate in our lives, to, to settle into our hearts and our minds, that we can be convinced of a lot of things under very little persuasion, if that persuasion is consistent. 
This is why it's so important for us to gather together, to be in God's word, to be worshiping, to be an encouragement for each other, to be holding each other accountable. Because any false message can get into our lives and begin to mold and shape our mindset about specifically for them about who Christ is and what Christ has done and what he, uh, what his message of the gospel means for us. And then continuing on, he tells us, he says uh, in Galatians, oh, the wind blew my page over. He says in Galatians 1 6, he says that uh, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. The thing that we have to understand, church, is when we turn away from the message of the gospel, for any other message, we aren't just turning away from a, a conversation. We're not just turning away from uh, some information. When we turn away from the gospel, we are turning away from Christ himself. We are turning away from Jesus because the gospel and Christ are intertwined together. Because there is no good news that doesn't include Christ. Only good news, the only good news that matters and the only good news is that actual good news is good news that includes Christ and what Christ has done. And so what he's communicating to them here is he's connecting, he's connecting the gospel with the grace of Christ. Because he says, he says, to him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. What is the grace of Christ? This is what we have to know, church. The grace of Christ is his voluntary self-surrender. His voluntary self-surrender, just like she said. His voluntary self-surrender to humiliation and death. Not from any prompting other than his own love for sinful men. That is the grace of Christ. And what he's saying there is that they have turned away from that for a different, or another way that can be said, is another of a different kind. That it's not just kind of a, a small variation, but it's a completely different message. It's a completely different view of the gospel. And that matters. So what is the problem as we continue to move forward? What is the problem with a different message, the message that they teach? Remember, we've talked about it. We'll kind of get into it a little bit more here. The message they taught was a message of a work-based righteousness or a work-based salvation. And so what is the problem with changing that message? Martin Luther would say it like this. There is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There is no other alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on your on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own on your own work. And so there is no middle ground. There is no like kind of grace, kind of works. There is no middle ground. It's either grace or it's works. It's either grace or it's works. And we see that as we continue to move on because we have to know this. We have to know this church that any revisions to the gospel reverse it. Any revisions to the gospel reverse it. Because the moment that we add anything to Christ's work, the moment that we supplemented Christ's work on the cross, we have immediately stripped grace away from it and added some kind of works to it. And I love how Paul takes a firm stance on this. In verse, uh, in verse 7, he says, not that there is another. He says it. He says you're turning to another gospel, but not that there is another. Because Paul is making it clear right here too. There is no middle ground. There is no like. God, there's no fence with this. You're on one side or the other. And this is very important because the very central point of the gospel is Christ and His grace and His mercy on the cross for us. And so this works gospel that they that they came in or teaching it's a, it's a gospel that tells us. That tell, told the people here that they re, it required good works for them to get into 
a place where they are righteous enough to be before a holy God. That they must do more good than they do bad. That they must, you know, and we talked about this several weeks back, that it's like every other religion in the world functions in this capacity. Every other religion in the world functions in the capacity that you give to your God to gain from your God. You give to your God to be in right standing for your God. And so that's how every, look it up, every other religion besides Christianity and even some parts within Christianity, we'll get to that later, function in the capacity that you give to your God to gain from your God. Christ does not work like that. Grace righteousness does not work like that. Christ righteousness does not work in that capacity. Acts chapter 15 verse 1, it says this, Luke says this, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so they were, Paul and, and I mean Peter and, and the apostles, they were preaching this message of faith through grace, uh, grace through faith in Christ and his work on the cross is what saves us. And then these other men were coming in and what's happening in Galatia and they were saying, no, 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 listen, you still have to abide by the old law. You still have to eat certain things. You have to go do certain things. You have to be circumcised. You have to do these works. You have to do these righteous rituals. You have to do these ceremonies to supplement, basically, to gain righteousness. And so how, how would that apply for us? Where is the real world kind of application for us currently? You know, it's, it's adding any kind of work. And, and so, you know, a lot of times circumcision and baptism are related kind of, uh, you know, circ- uh, baptism is kind of the New Testament circumcision. And so in a lot of ways we could say that if anyone would ever say that salvation is, is based on the fact of whether we've been baptized or not, then that is adding a supplement to the grace of Christ. That is adding a work to the grace of Christ. You know, and so continuing on in that, you know, it says that Christ's work needs to be supplemented. That's what they were teaching about, keeping rituals, religious requirements, ceremonies. Uh, in modern day and even in some Christian denominations, there would be these sacramental activities that you have to participate in that merit you grace. That, that's, that's how you gain the grace of God is by doing these certain things, these certain activities. These are things that are going on that people are being taught in Christian denominations within our community. And so they were supplementing the work of Christ, adding to what Christ has done. And so Paul says, he says, this is a distortion. Or another word for this is perversion of what was originally given by the gospel of Christ. And so it is taking the gospel of Christ and it is distorting it. It is making it unclear. It is uh, perverting it, which is what the enemy does with everything, right? There is nothing that the, that, that, that the enemy inflicts on us. There is nothing the enemy puts before us in temptation or sin that is original. It is the enemy taking something that God has blessed us with and perverting it. It is the enemy taking something God has done in our life and changing it to draw us away from a holy God and his true message. And so why is this such a big deal? Why is a works-based right? Uh, why is it hard for people to accept a grace-based righteousness? Why is it hard for us to accept the idea of grace, uh, putting our faith in Christ, and that grace bringing us into the fold, into the family of God, having a seat at God's table? Well, there's two reasons why people have a difficult time accepting the idea of grace. The first thing is that it offends our pride. That it tells us that we need a Savior and that we cannot save ourselves. And it gives us no credit. And we don't like the idea of that, right? Because we like to do our own thing. We like to, we like to be able to say, like, well, I have this because I've done it, right? Like, we work uh, overtime or we, we build something. We're like, I have this because I worked for it, right? Because that's what makes sense to us. 
That's that, and, and not only that, but we're able to look within ourselves, look at ourselves and say, I did that. That's why, that's why grace righteousness offends people. That's why maybe it even offends you here this morning or offends other parts of Christianity that would try to teach that system. It's because it, 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 takes, it, it takes the focus away from us. It takes, uh, you know, and a lot of people, and we'll get to this later, would say, well, you're letting people off too easy, and we'll talk about that later on. But it takes the focus away from us when we put our faith in grace-based righteousness. And then the second thing is this, is that it offends our knowledge. It doesn't make sense to us because that's not how the world functions. You know, per our limited view of how the world works, we believe, uh, you know, we believe that we have established and understood the natural order of the world and not God. That a dead, you know, for us to even imagine, for people around us to even imagine that a dead man rose from the grave in a new body, never to die again, paying a penalty for people who mistreated him and denied him and deserted him. That makes no sense to me. Why would a deity do that? Because our God is good. That's why he did that. That's why Christ came, because our God is good and he's the one true God. He doesn't need anything from us. Remember, any distortion or perversion is a reversal of the gospel. It alters, and what does it not only alter the very message that we preach, but it alters the person and the work of Christ. Because what it says is that either his work on our behalf wasn't sufficient, or it strips Christ of his deity. It strips Christ of who he is and what he's done. And so, you know, and he says here, I love how Paul continues on and he says, he says, even if I or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary, let him be accursed. Or this word accursed also meaning let him be separated. And so that's a big deal because not only does he say if angels come and tell you, he says if I come and tell you something different. And I think that's very important for us to understand in a world today when week after week, month after month, year after year, more and more Christian leaders are turning from the faith and beginning to say something different. I mean, people who are writing the songs that we sing or, or have sung are turning away from the faith. Uh, pastors who have written books that have changed people's lives are turning away from the faith. People who have led churches, mega churches, are turning away from the faith. And so if we put our faith in people, if we put our faith in the work of people, and they turn away them, and they begin to present us with another message, what do we do? And Paul says that. Even, he says, even if I fail and come to you, fail Christ and come to you speaking something different, don't listen to me. But not only that, what does he say? He says, even angels. He says, don't listen to angels. And so how does this apply today? The thing we have to understand is there are religions, uh, so-called Christian religions, built on the revelation of angels. Do we, do, did you, do we know that? You know that, that, uh, that, that Mormonism, that Joseph Smith claims that he was visited by an angel named Morani. That in, 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 in everything that they are about contradicts our Bible, contradicts the biblical narrative that we, we believe in. And that came because he says it was from the revelation of an angel. You know, Jehovah Witnesses visited by the archangel Michael who presented himself as the son of God. And so what does that do? And their religion is very work-based. So what does it do? It strips away the deity of Jesus. That Jesus was nothing but a teacher. Same thing in, uh, in Islam. That it was established because an angel, uh, the angel Gabriel, came and visited Muhammad in a cave. What did he do? Stripped away the deity of Christ and said that Jesus was nothing but a teacher. That he was a prophet. 
Anytime that a, uh, that a work-based religion steps into the fold, it has to strip the deity of Christ away. It has to say that that work wasn't sufficient enough. Even in Jude, chapter, uh, Jude verse 4, it says, talking about this, these people, these Judaizers that are coming in, what they do, he says, they who pervert the grace of God and deny our only master, our sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. Anytime there is a message other than a true gospel message of Jesus, it strips not only the sufficiency of the work of, of Christ away, but it strips away his deity. Strips away his godliness. Because we believe that Jesus is God. And he says, the grace gospel. So what is the grace gospel? The grace gospel is that it is, uh, it is salvation through faith in Christ. That the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. And that he rose again on the third day. And so Jesus dying for our sins not only showed that, that the effectiveness of sin against us for eternity is dead. But also that death itself is defeated in him. That God himself put on flesh to, to bear the weight and the penalty of sinful man. And that God the Son died for us and rose again on the third day. And so in the gospel of grace, we, we have to believe two truths. The first one is this, is that we are too sinful to contribute to our salvation. And we need complete rescue. That's why it says there in verse 6, it says, He who called you. That God calls us into salvation. God gives us the faith to draw us in to experience His grace. That He has called us. That we are too sinful to contribute to our salvation and need complete rescue. And the second thing is this, that we are saved by belief in Jesus' work, the grace of Christ and nothing else, not our behavior. That we are saved by belief in Christ, not our behavior for Christ. And so, what are some applications for us today that go against those two truths? The first thing is this, is that we are saved by behavior, that there are certain things we do, that there are steps we follow in church. Some people would call this front-loading the gospel, that we would put all these applications on the beginning of saying that you have to be changing your attitude, change your desires, cleaning up yourself before you come, making our performance the Savior and not Christ's performance. And you know, this isn't only limited to certain denominations in Christianity, you know what? If you've been around Baptist churches long enough, there is a Baptist version of work-based righteousness, right? You've seen that play out, right? Where it's been presented in this way that you better change everything the moment you say you're saved, right? Because what most Protestant Baptist churches would do to add work-based religion to it is they would, we would do something or Baptists would do something called backloading the gospel. That where the moment you're saved, your entire life changes. There's no kind of view of sanctification. It's that everything changes. That, that you have to begin to work for this high level of spirituality in your life. Not to contribute to any kind of easy believism, but to say that there, that there is physical evidence of your change immediately in your life. You know, and the second thing is this. We see this more in maybe the more liberal circles of Christianity. And 
another form of work-based righteousness is this, that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are loving and a good person. That it teaches that good works are enough to get us to God. You know, whereas just be good to people. Just be good to your neighbor. Just serve your neighbor. That that's good enough. That, that if you'll do that, that'll get you to God. But in reality, it's kind of deceiving because it's really a work-based righteousness that says that good people get to God. People that are good, people who do good to others get to God. But the reality of it is, is that if all good people can know God and get to God, then Jesus' death was not necessary, right? If we can be good enough in any way we present it, and if there's good works enough that we do to get to God or be in God's good graces, if we can do that on our own, what good is Christ's death for us but wasted? And not only that, but this means that bad people have no hope. That means that people that don't do good work don't have any hope of salvation, don't have any hope of uh, sanctification and change in their life. Because they're not choosing to do good. But Matthew 22, 10 would tell us something different whenever he's talking about the feast of the Lord's table. He said it's for both bad and good are invited. Because that's the God we serve. That he invites us to his table. He's, he, he, he has a place for us, invites us to his table, regardless of what we've done or who we are or where we've been. He has a place for us at his table. You know, and, and even in the, in the midst of that, you know, we're encouraged to be tolerant and open, never acknowledging sin and its effects. But the reality of it is, guys, that without one sense of his own evil, the knowledge of God's grace will not be transformed. Unless we can truly understand the weight of our sin, we will never appreciate the glory of God's grace on our behalf. So we have to acknowledge sin. We have to acknowledge the state of who we are and our inability to save ourselves. Because what grace does is grace removes our fear. Grace removes our anxiety. Grace removes our guilt. Grace removes our shame in regards to our sin. It's belief in his work, not behavior to earn from our work. And belief is a strong word. You know, some people say, well, belief is a work, right? I wouldn't say that. And I don't think you would really say that either. Because I can... I can believe that a shot will heal me of some disease, but unless the nurse gives me that shot, I'm not healed, right? So there is a work that is being done that isn't my work. It's someone else's work for my salvation. And it's through belief that we experience that grace, and God's word is clear on this. Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I love the inclusivity of that. Everyone. It doesn't matter if you're good to your neighbor or not beforehand. It doesn't matter if you come from the best family or the wealthiest family. John 3.16 said, Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Ephesians 2.8-9, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. John 5.24, he says, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Church, if grace is not given, then it is not grace. Because grace is a gift that God has given to us. And it's through belief 
in that work that Christ has done for us and resting in that work that we experience that grace, that we are able to begin to live in that grace. And so the last thing this morning, and I'll be done, is that the true gospel is not a people-pleasing message. The true gospel is not a people-pleasing message. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He says, seeking the approval of man or God. Or am I trying to please man? Paul was being accused. And I feel like I've missed this even in previous readings of this text. You know, what is he really talking about? Paul is being accused of being a people pleaser right now. Paul is being accused of making salvation easy. Paul is being accused of doing what he needs to do to make it easy on people to get to God, to please people's desire to get close to God. And Paul so just diligently pushes against that. You know, because the thing is, Paul would be very clear that he was an ambassador, not a politician. He received, because we know, we know what Paul experienced for the sake of this very gospel. What did Paul, Paul shipwreck, Paul stone, Paul's beaten, Paul's imprisoned? I would not say that that's easy. And he would call all of us to suffer alongside Christ in his death. So he is not presenting us, he is not presenting us with this easy believism. He is very much telling us that through the gospel of Christ, your life will change and it will look different, but not by understanding and believing that there is work you have to do to get to it. He says there will, work that, there will be work that you do because of what you understand and believe about the grace and gospel of Jesus. That it is guaranteed that work and change will happen. The biblical presentation of salvation by grace isn't an excuse to sin, but a reason to live and to work and to please God for His and, and, and for His approval. You know, and that's not to earn anything necessarily from God, but I, I want God's approval in my life. Don't you? Don't you want the approval of a holy God based off of the work that we do? You know, if you're if you're a Christian here this morning, then in, even in the midst of your sin, that feeling. That, 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 that conviction that, that floods over us when we sin. That's this desire within us because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. That's this desire to, to, for God's approval. You know, if we understand the grace of God, it will result in good works for God's kingdom. You know, and so then the question is, well, well why live this way? Why not sin? Why not just do whatever we want? And how can we know? How can we know that God will hold on to us in the midst of our failures? You know, and, and, and I'm so thankful that God gives us real-world application to be able to see things play out. You know, for instance, my kids were born in a sense physically in my image. They look like me. There's no denying They look like their mom. There's no denying that. My kids never have to worry about what they're going to eat. My kids never have to worry about where they're going to be, how they're going to get from point A to point B. My kids never have to worry about what they're going to wear. My kids never have to worry about those things. And they don't have to not worry about those things because they've done anything to earn. 
You know, we spend the majority of their lives dressing them, bathing them, cleaning them up, bringing them from point A to point B, threatening to leave them at places occasionally. But I did for my kids long before they've ever done a single thing to make any of that easier. It's not any shade of them, but that's just the reality, right? My kids had not done a single thing for me from the moment they were born, but what did I do? When they entered into this world and became part of my family, I took care of them. I provided for them. I loved them. And it's because they know, I hope, because they know that I love them, that they live their lives for my approval. That they live their lives to follow the guidelines that I've laid out. Not because they think they have to do those things to earn my love, but because they do those things because they know I love them. They know that I've given for them. They know that I'm going to provide for them. And I hope they always know that there is nothing that they can ever do to be pushed out of or kicked out of my family. There is nothing they can ever do in their life to lose their last name, to lose that denoting fact that says they are a son of Jake. There is nothing they can do to lose that. And God's family works in the same way. Church, the moment we become a part of the family of God, God begins loving us, caring for us, long before we've ever stepped towards anything in regards to contributing to his kingdom work. Because God sees within us that there is work that we can do. Each and every one of us, the Bible says, when we're part of the church, we're, we're the hands, we're the feet, we're the toes, we're the ears, we're the eyes. God sees purpose in our works. God sees value to what we bring to the family of God. And whether that's standing on the stage singing or that's standing at the door welcoming, holding an umbrella for praying for somebody in a dark corner. It doesn't, there's no uh, hierarchy to works. There's no level of, 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 of professionalism in Christianity. We're all people contributing to the same purpose, to the same good, to the same God, to the same kingdom growth. And God has provided us with love and grace long before we ever did any of those things. I can promise you right now, I spent the majority of my early Christian life spitting in the face of God because I was ignorant. Doing what I wanted to do because I was selfish. And I'm thankful. I feel like I can look back and know that there's no time in the midst of my stupidity that God ever let go of me. God held on to me. God used my failures to do something different than what I would have had before. You know, there's a big difference between punishment and discipline. But we use those words interchangeably, but they're not. My kids aren't punished by me. My kids are disciplined because there's a difference. Discipline contributes to growth. Discipline contributes to our progression. Discipline contributes to where we're heading and our, our development. When we become a child of God, does God discipline us? Absolutely. Does God punish us? No, he doesn't. God disciplines us for our growth. God disciplines us for our development. God disciplines us. God's discipline, and even in the midst of our suffering, is part of our sanctification. That God is using our life experience for growth and good. 1 Corinthians 10.33 says, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Paul says that my work as a believer now it's like if, I, if I'm pleasing anyone, it's not for my own good, but for, it's for the glory of God and for others' salvation. 
1 Thessalonians 2, 4, he says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. 2 Timothy 1, 9, Who saved us and called us to the holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Ephesians 6, 6, Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. The last two... Verse, uh, the last two scriptures, and I'll be done, church. Matthew 25, 23. Well done, my good and faithful servant. 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. I have fought the good fight, as Paul would say, and I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Church, the grace of God creates works, good works, for God's glory and not our own. The grace of God is not an excuse to sin. The grace of God is not gained through our efforts. And don't let anyone ever tell you that the grace of God, to live and to walk in the grace of God is easy. Because God's word tells us over and over and over again that it comes with persecution, that it comes with sacrifice, that for many throughout history it's come with death, the grace of Christ is anything but easy. But it is everything in the salvation and the growth of his people. Grace gives us the strength we need to be victorious soldiers for Christ. 2 Timothy 2, 1-3 says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also share in suffering as good soldiers of Christ Jesus. The grace of God is the very power in which we step forward and do work. The grace of God is not our excuse to sit. It is our excuse to step into our spaces, to step into our family, to step into our workspaces and to tell people about Jesus tell people about the gospel. But we can only find that in God's grace. Listen, church, the moment a Christian turns away from living by God's grace, we depend on our own power and strength to live. I pray that we would do that. I pray that we would begin looking towards the grace of God, embracing the grace of God, and begin having conversations about God's grace. Sharing God's grace with our kids, helping them understand that God's grace is not an excuse to sin, but it is the very power in which we step out and work. And that the work we do is very much like, like why I hope my sons do what they do. That they do it not to earn my love, but they do it because I love them. That they step out and that they work and that we would be the same in our Christian walk. That we walk and we work for God's approval, not because we're gaining salvation, but because he saved us. We step out and we work. Church, I'd like to pray for us this morning and I'll be done. Father God, I thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you for the grace that as Christians we so greatly get to enjoy. God, let us not take that for granted, but God, let us use that as the power we need to step out as good soldiers of yours into a broken, dying world that is hurting, that desperately needs from us to step into their dark spaces and be the light of the world. God, I thank you for Cross Point Community Church. I thank you for those who are here with us, God. I pray 
I pray that we would be known as a church of grace, a space of grace, God. And Lord, I pray that the message of grace would never be looked at as, as an easy way to believe, but as a just a, a compassionate calling for work, for battle. Father God, pray for us, Lord, that we would be a people ready to make a difference. And that we would step out from your grace as power in our lives. That we would understand the love you've given and the sacrifices you made in your humility on behalf of sinful man. God, if we have not, if there's someone here this morning who has not put their faith and belief and trust in the work of Christ on the cross for their salvation, God, I pray you would do that this morning. Lord, we're broken people in need of a Savior, complete rescue, God. We cry out to you for that. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Thank you, church.